Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to episode two of State Theory and Socialist Strategy. As I mentioned in the previous episode, we're currently between season one and season two, so I wanted to take this opportunity to replay a series of episodes that ran last year. They covered similar topics. We talked about neo-Marxian state theory, the socialist uh, you know, the socialist conception of the state and society, and a number of other things. This week, I'm bringing you a rerun of my episode with the great Leo Panich. Leo is a dear friend and mentor of mine. We had a really excellent discussion on some of the pitfalls of social democracy and how they will be faced and manifested in the uh, you know, left social democratic upsurge that we've seen across the world. We talked specifically about Jeremy Corbyn. Leo has written extensively about the UK Labour Party, so he has a wealth of knowledge in that respect. It also translates over into the Bernie Sanders movement, although Leo has a very interesting take, I think, on the prospects of socialism in the United States and how it might take a different kind of path than the one that we might see in the tradition of European social democracy that Jeremy Corbyn is a part of. I'm often slandered on this show as being kind of a wishy-washy, milk-toast social democrat. And, uh, you know, I don't know. In this, in this day and age, uh, with the neoliberal hellscape that we find ourselves in, with the insistence by these nasty neoliberal, you know, authoritarian types that there is no alternative to this hellscape in which we live, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that being called a social democrat is the worst thing that could ever happen. <laughs> because although there are a number of historical pitfalls to that movement uh, that we are tracking very specifically and very closely in this series. Uh, at least the social democratic worldview is interested in forging a different kind of alternative to capitalism. Now, yes, before you start yelling into your phones or whatever, wherever else you're listening to this, as you will hear in my interview with Leo Panich, there are a number of very serious contradictions entailed in the social democratic path particularly a social democratic path towards socialism. And so here at Dead Pundit Society, we typically advocate for a social democratic perspective that goes beyond social democracy as such and pushes towards a transformation into full socialism. Now, whatever the hell that is, we haven't really quite figured that out yet. It's a work in progress. And I don't think any amount of posturing or slandering online We'll solve that. We're going to have to make the path by walking it. And so Leo Panish is going to give us a great perspective on how to go about doing that. So while we are critical of social democracy, we nonetheless vehemently support Jeremy Corbyn and their efforts to bring socialism to the United Kingdom and beyond. And so here is a two-minute clip that I'm going to bring you of John McDonnell, who's the number two man, uh, the right-hand man of Jeremy Corbyn, you might say. And he's articulating the project of rebuilding the vision of left social democracy in the UK and then going beyond it. And then after that, I'll bring you my interview with Leo. So here we are, John McDonnell, 
at last month's Labour Party conference. Enjoy. So yes, we've proved now that we're an effective campaigning party. We now have to prove that we'll be an effective governing party. A government that can set the political agenda for a generation. That's our objective. And you know, if you study history, the history of our party, you'll see it's always been the role of Labour governments to lead our country into each new era. It was the Labour, the Attlee Labour government, that built a new society from the debris of the bomb sites in the new era after the Second World War. Those men and women who had endured so much through the depression of the 1930s and who had sacrificed so much to defeat fascism placed their trust in us, in our party. My dad was a sergeant in the army and my mum was a welder by day in a munitions factory and an ARP warden at night. God knows how she did it. But they came out of the war with that spirit of 1945 inspired in them by the election of a Labour government. And the Labour Party fulfilled its promise. They fulfilled its promise to them and all families by creating the welfare state, providing free education for their children, building a decent home, investing in the economy based upon full employment, and yes, creating that jewel in our crown, the NHS, the most civilising act of any government ever. And in... And in the 1960s, when the Tories governed this country from their gentlemen's clubs on behalf of the privileged few and held this country back from facing the challenges of the modern era, it was the Wilson Labour government that recognised the potential of a modern Britain forged, as Harold Wilson said, in the white heat of the scientific revolution. For my brother and me and so many others of our generation, new educational opportunities enabled us to challenge the barriers that held back so many working-class kids. It was down to a Labour government. And yes... Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me today is Leo Panich. He's a professor emeritus at York University and a Canada Research Chair. He's written many books, including The End of Parliamentary Socialism with Colin Lees and The Making of Global Capitalism with Sam Gendon. He's been uh, the editor of the Socialist Register for over 30 years, which makes him particularly well-suited to address the shifts in the political winds that we're currently witnessing. Leo, thanks for joining us today. Very happy to be here, Adam. So am I the first person to introduce you as a professor emeritus? Uh, You're recently recently retired from York. Not that recent. That's been a a year already, so I'm afraid you're not. (laughs) Not not quite. Yeah, it's... uh, Full transparency, I was one of Leo's uh, final um, MA students. Uh, That's right, and a very good one as well. Well, I I was honored to be one of your final MA students, I should add. Uh, It was was a great experience. So thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to talk to you about this political moment. So you reached out to me, because I've been proclaiming on the show that we need to build a left social democratic future. And you and a couple of others, a couple of others, your students, I should add, (laughs) actually reached out and said, no, 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 Adam, that's not quite right. We need to do better than left social democracy. And so in this episode, I really want to get at a better articulation of my thesis of what I'm trying to argue for here. And it's going beyond uh, social democracy, if you will. Uh, So tell us a little bit about the particular political moment in which we find ourselves with uh, Corbyn and Sanders and beyond. Well, I I think that uh, you can call both of them left social democrats. Uh, 
Uh, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I only objected to you calling me one. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, the reason I'm not, uh, is precisely because I've always argued from, uh, my work going back to the late 1970s on the attempt to change the British Labour Party at the time of the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy and the Benite uh, movement inside it, the Greater London Council at the municipal level, uh, that uh, such an attempt, while admirable, to turn a party like the Labour Party into a socialist party, uh, would inevitably split the party. Uh, that the center-right of such parties... Uh, who very, very strongly understand what they are ideologically and politically, and they are not socialists. They have come to terms with capitalism, although they'd like to make it a little more humane or regulated. They will, uh, up to the day before an election, be prepared to split the party rather than let a socialist government come into place under their rubric. Uh, and it's that that has always made me feel that the project of changing the Labour Party without, or any social democratic party, without taking this into account is, is inevitably flawed. That's, I think, the, the thing we need to look for in what will happen with Corbyn and, and certainly what would have happened uh, with Sanders had he won the nomination. That's some really great historical insight. I think nowadays folks, uh, myself included, are really just sort of grasping at straws and looking for uh, any hopeful opening, uh, regardless of the uh, inevitable contradictions that you rightly point to. Uh, but, but perhaps these contradictions are something that the left needs to return to, given uh, this recent political upsurge in social democratic uh, you know, politics. Uh, you and uh, Greg Albo and your preface to this year's socialist register really spell out this this task really well i want to this is a somewhat long quote but i want to want to get this all out there the two of you write the political event of gaining state power whether by taking parliament or in a collapse of the existing political regime has proven time and again to be less crucial than the social revolution of building capacities for self-government and the democratization and socialization of institutional resources the event in itself will never be a sufficient condition for the exploited and oppressed to build their own capacities for establishing collective rather than competitive ways of living through developing socialist democracy. So you draw a distinction there between the actual event of taking state power and the necessity to build the capacities inside and outside the, the party in broader society in order to see this revolution through. How do you see that playing out, uh, some of those weaknesses and deficiencies playing out in uh, the UK Labour Party right now? Well, uh, I think that, you know, Corbyn was very much a product of that earlier attempt I was speaking to uh, that Tony Benn was the spearhead of. And he always saw himself primarily as an educator. Uh, as he put it, when he won his first nomination uh, to be a Labour MP back in 1951. His self-definition uh, of his task was that of making socialists. 
And he meant by that not simply converting people to the ideology of socialism, but of developing people's capacities to engage uh, as socialists in political strategy, to engage as socialists uh, in the democratization of the institutions they were in and the communities they were in. That's a big task. And, and although the communist and social democratic parties historically uh, when they emerged as great mass parties between 1880 and 1920, the first permanent organizations of the subordinate classes, they were oriented to forming the proletariat, if you like, working class people, into a self-acting uh, class, a, a set of communities that could act in their own interests, could identify, define their own interests, uh, could develop the skills politically, not simply to be represented, uh, but to hold the representatives accountable, uh, and indeed to become at political actors in whatever sphere themselves. They were oriented that way, but the constraints of parliamentary democracy on the one hand, which is a very elitist notion of representation, you put someone in there and he introduces policies, uh, uh, or the communist parties, the vanguard parties, uh, which uh, were very much oriented to making a revolution, uh, it, but not necessarily to developing mass capacities to run the society they wanted to introduce. Both of those failed to play that historic role um, through the 20th century of developing the capacities of those they claim to represent. Now, there have always been uh, the kinds of socialists I'm talking about inside both parties. Uh, and what we're seeing, especially with Corbyn, um, who, as I say, was, uh, in, in a sense, the mentored by Tony Benn, uh, does see himself in that light. And, and a lot of the people who formed Momentum, which is the organization uh, that ran in front of him in a way uh, to get him elected as leader and then to keep him in the leadership against the attempt by the majority of the parliamentarians to get rid of him, uh, those people as well are very oriented to this, um, not simply to making uh, uh, MPs accountable, although that too, uh, but also to developing constituency labor parties into the centers of life in their communities, uh, where people can learn to act politically uh, in their workplaces, uh, in whatever arenas of life they're engaged in. So it sounds to me that uh, that Greece, what happened with Greece in Syriza, some two or three years ago now, almost, uh, is really a cautionary tale in many ways. Yeah. And and you were very active in that situation in Greece, uh, both on the national, the domestic and the international solidarity level, uh, before long before Syriza was was placed in power. And uh, you have an interesting and, and somewhat uh, unique, even idiosyncratic analysis, I think, on the left about exactly what went wrong and, and what we should make of that failure of Syriza. So maybe, maybe tell us about your involvement in that and take us back you know, to 2011, 2012. Well, I've, I've, I've known the people who, many of the people who created Syriza for a long time. And 
was impressed with a minority, but nevertheless a very impressive minority in the leadership, uh, which saw politics in the terms I've just been describing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yes, they wanted radical policies, but they understood that the ability to carry those radical policies through would depend on the development of alternate means of production, distribution, consumption uh, in Greece uh, once they were forced to, uh, uh, should they have been forced to, leave the European Union. It's right. not something they wanted to do. Um, at all. And they wouldn't have get, gotten elected if they had said they were going to leave the European Union. Um, that said, it was always clear to me that the radical things that they wanted to do uh, were not compatible with staying inside the European Union. Uh, just getting the monkey of austerity off their backs was not going to be compatible with what the Germans would allow them to do. And the labor movements in the north of Europe, above all in Germany, uh, were not strong enough or even oriented enough uh, to shifting the balance of forces, say, inside Germany uh, to have given the Syriza government space to do uh, even that minimal thing of getting austerity off their backs, reneging on some of the debt, etc. Well, you know, the line that came, the easy line for most of the international left, was simply that uh, they capitulated. Right, right. Um, you know, and, and that's just so simplistic and easy. They mean they capitulated in the sense that they didn't uh, pull out of the euro. They never have the honesty to say that to have pulled out of the euro would have then uh, required the introduction of import controls and capital controls. Uh, and you can't have import controls and capital controls inside the European Union. Right, right. In order to make that kind of strategy viable, you would have had to develop the confidence, the interest of the mass of Greek voters uh, in the kinds of alternative means of living uh, that would have you know, allowed them to exist outside of the European Union in any viable way, to rebuild a furniture industry in Greece, uh, to develop alternative forms of production and consumption across a whole range of arenas. Of course, even then, it would have been extremely iffy, um, not least because, as nobody talks about, Greece is a member of NATO, because this is a country that's already had a military coup, uh, etc., etc., So my great fear long before they were elected was that they weren't putting enough emphasis on developing the cadre uh, uh, to be able to uh, develop those capacities in the population through the solidarity networks, etc. They were mostly concerned with would we have enough capable and honest people to go into the state. And it is a very corrupt and clientel estate. That should be a great concern. But that was their only concern. And they did, in fact, take the best people, dump them into the labyrinth of the state, and left nobody in the party to be mobilizing and educating and developing people once they got into government. Now, I must say, the activists in the Solidarity Networks also had a very limited view uh, of government. Many of them are anarchists, and they would say things like, why do you call it a Syriza government? 
It's a government. It doesn't matter what kind of a government it is. It's a government. So the governments can only ever be repressive. Yeah, and and uncreative, et cetera. So they weren't Mm -hmm. coming forward with any proposals for what the government could do in order to give them resources to do this kind of stuff either. You know, this is this is essentially my position on Greece, and I, I, it's a it's a very sad outcome, uh, and I do feel that uh, what we've seen with it, uh, and in some senses I predicted it, has been the social democratization of the Syriza government, uh, in that limited negative sense that I was speaking of, as oriented to policy. Uh, almost entirely, as getting caught in the labyrinth of the state. I think that's what's happened to it. And I think the danger would have been with Sanders, and the danger uh, could still be with Corbyn, uh, that that could happen. Uh, you know, so that's the danger with left social democracy, if you like. Um, and And the forces are such that I think in the short run, uh, almost anywhere that you'd have a left social de- democratic leadership come to office, uh, that the more the greater likelihood would be uh, the full social democratization rather than the development of a socialist strategy. I know that sounds depressing, but I think that's <laughs> I, I, I think at the moment that's the likely outcome. I think that's right. I mean, we're, 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 your perspective is so valuable, not only because you, you bring such a, a broad uh, international and, and, and historical sweep to your analysis, but also because that, that sort of affords you a different kind of focus. Whereas I, I, if, if I bend the stick in the classic Leninist way, right? You bend the stick in one, one, one direction or the other direction, depending on the, the context, right? Depending on what's necessary in that particular moment. If I bend the stick, it's, it's quite often in, in being a little bit blind to the impasses of social democracy. Mm. And, and when challenged, I'm, I'm more, than, uh, more than willing to admit that, yeah, okay, these are, these are limitations. There are a number of contradictions inherent to social democracies, if you just, as you've just sort of listed. But at the same time, I find this sort of knee-jerk, anti-social democracy uh, kind of ethos on the left right now to be really frightening because they're not coming at it from a really principled direction like you are kind of eyes forward, always looking out for the contradictions just over the horizon, right? They're looking at it in, in one of two ways, either anti-statist in the anarchist way that you just mentioned with the solidarity networks in Greece, or they're looking at it in this kind of um, insurrectionist, uh, almost messianic Leninist uh, model of uh, a rupture with the state. Yeah, I think there's something in between that is, you know, perhaps less thought through, and uh, it's a expectation that were there to be one government uh, which would break with the institutions of global capitalism, uh, no matter where it is, no matter how small, Portugal, Greece, what have you, uh, that it would trigger a uh, explosion of similar developments elsewhere by virtue of its example. Um, and and uh, I, I think this is uh, unfortunately short-sighted and naive. Hmm. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I think that uh, it has been long held in the Trotskyist tradition uh, that this would happen, that their internationalism, their internationalist orientation – 
is built up around a knowledge of and an enthusiasm about uh, what's taking place in different parts of the world and a hope, um, even an expectation that a revolutionary break in one small place would have a cascading effect. Right, right. right. Um, this is uh, uneven combined development to the Trotsky. We talked a little bit about this with Raphael Kachaterian. Yeah, last week. to some extent, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it, you know, Trotsky at one point, I wouldn't, shouldn't put too much emphasis on this. Back in the thirties, uh, said that you know, capitalism had long passed its due date. Uh, it should have been done away with long before. And in that circumstance, one could expect that a break in any one place. You know, this is the kind of uh, uh, a break in any one place could lead to uh, a break around the world. And it's kind of picking up the, the theme of the Soviet Revolution, now exactly 100 years old, that mm-hmm. it, it, was the, it was the weakest link in the chain with an expectation that a break would then happen in the more advanced capitalist uh, other European countries, above all Germany. That didn't happen, of course. Um, so... Uh, I think that's a very common and not well thought through uh, expectation. If, you know, the constraints of global capitalism on any given government uh, is, in fact, enormous. Less so, obviously, uh, should it happen in the United States. Uh, We Canadians are very aware that we can only go so far. Uh, in, let alone even in a socialist direction, even in a Keynesian direction, unless the Americans <laughs> <laughs> go so far, uh, right. given, right. you know, given what a colony we are of the American empire. Um, but, but, you know, anywhere, this is a problem. But in order to be able to expect that a break anywhere would have international reverberations, you have to do the long, difficult, hard preparatory work of, you know, being able to have working classes, socialist parties, trade unions, shift the balance of forces inside those other countries before you make this break. You know, as I was saying, you know, the German working class was, if anything, racist about Southern Europeans you know, who worked longer hours than the Germans, but, you know, had this attitude that they're all lazy and unproductive. Um, and, and you know, you weren't going to get a shift in the balance of forces that were given space to Syriza without a very different type of trade union movement and set of socialist and social democratic parties in Germany. Uh, the left party in Germany it doesn't have the capacity to shift that. Uh, it's not even much oriented to it. It's too policy-oriented itself, hmm. uh, too little oriented to remaking the German working class. Um, so we need to be looking for how to get past these constraints of international capitalism, certainly, but we can't expect that to happen with uh, the wave of a hand in one place. Right. So you've given us so much there. I mean, that's the, uh, let me try to just pick out and distill some of the particular aspects there. Cause I follow your work quite closely. Uh, folks here on the show will know, and let me just give you a little bit of credit here, credit where credit's due. Uh, the, the big part of the, the new left agenda that I'm trying to sort of build here is, uh, comes, uh, you know, from, from, from a lot of your work. And so folks here, 
if you're if you're hearing resonances, that would be why. So I really want to pick up on these. A, a few things about Greece. You mentioned the importance of reviving the uh, say the furniture industry in Greece, for example. Um, is are we really at the limits here, particularly with the EU and the UK? Are we at the limits with the integration of global capitalism and supply chains and international divisions of labor and manufacturing? Uh, for example, you know uh, the, the monoculture that you see in a lot of countries uh, is just not conducive to a national social democratic project, wherein you are blocked out of global markets. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you can't, they, they, how much olives, uh, olives and olive oil can they subsist on, right. uh, before the people start demanding meat other than, you know, sheep and goats perhaps, right. <laughs> uh, or, or, or whatever. I mean, I don't have enough awareness of the, of the Greek, uh, you know, uh, produce economy to know, but, but it seems to me that the diversification of manufacturing and production and agriculture in Europe and abroad has really made this uh, socialism in one country <laughs> project perhaps even more futile than it even was in this in the Soviet era. Yeah, and certainly for a country like Greece that has you know uh, so few energy resources, you can't run an economy on olive oil. So you know, we're, at least Russia had that. Not not to mention you know a massive range of other minerals. So, yes, it, 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 this is very true, and it does show you the limitations of any project of socialism in country, but especially one like this. That said, that said, there are a great many countries in the world which have much greater capacity to be more inwardly oriented in their production. You know, Yao Pedro Stedele, the head of the Landless People's Movement in Brazil, often says uh, that the tragedy uh, of the monoculture you referred to, of turning uh, Brazilian agriculture export-oriented in the production of soy, let us say, um, uh, means that the ability to feed uh, its massive hundreds of million population gets undermined. Uh, and it means that uh, even if the PT government had managed to shift the international balance of trade more in Brazil's direction than they did uh, around agriculture, and they did have some breakthroughs um, in international agreements, you know, uh, by shifting towards monocultures and export-oriented agriculture, they were tying themselves ever more deeply to an American-led global capitalism or to a Chinese-led global capitalism for those people who think that the Chinese are going to do that. I don't. But, mm-hmm. you know, you see the point. So one of the things that we need to be doing uh, if we at all are serious about the prospects for socialism in the 21st century is not imagining that we're going to withdraw to autarky that we're going to withdraw away from internationalism by any means completely. But we do need to look at uh, what strategies can be developed, what means can be developed for more inward-oriented economic production um, uh, without breaking entirely. Uh, Now, that's needed for ecological reasons as well. There's nothing more ludicrous than seeing um, seltzer water, mineral water, being shipped from Sicily to Norway in massive trucks 
and yeah. and and mineral water from Norway being shipped to Italy in massive trucks, passing <laughs> yeah. each other on the freeways of Europe. Uh, but you know that that's the situation we're in, and given the economic as well as ecological contradictions, we. Making the kind of socialist change we're talking about, it does, it is going to have to involve reconceiving what standards of living mean in the 21st century for both economic and ecological reasons. And part of the work we need to do, and I think it is doable, uh, is to develop the capacities of parties, unions, community organizations, social movements to have that discussion around uh, what those collective goods could be that would begin to shift uh, production and consumption and distribution away from the very heavy concentration on uh, individual consumer goods. Um, uh, you know, this is an indication of how long and difficult a struggle we're engaged in. But given the irrationality and chaos of contemporary global capitalism, we're going to see loads of attempts uh, to get out of it. Right, right. Well said. So it seems to me that I want to jump ahead to something I was going to get to here in a little bit later. But it seems to me that the way that folks are trying to accomplish this, in particular within the attunement to the ecological crisis that you spoke of, is they're returning to an extreme form of localism. Uh, but the kind of politics that you've outlined there would certainly be in, in, in many respects national national yes. projects but there isn't right now there exists very little integration particularly at least in north america yes I, I, I think this is absolutely right adam right. Uh, uh the alternatives appear to be globalism or extreme right, localism right. There, there's no middle ground there, uh, it seems. and there's there's no there's no democratic economic planning capacity uh at the local level i mean apart from it being extremely selfish uh, you can imagine a socialist society in what Mill Valley in California uh, or, or, you know, uh, uh, somewhere in the Canadian uh, uh, British Columbia interior uh, around Kelowna. Uh, but, you know, that involves not giving a damn what happens down the road. Um, you know, uh, on the other side of the state border, let alone uh, the national border. Uh, but beyond that, you know, and any effective alternative way of living that I've been speaking to does at least have to take place uh, at a national level. And, you know, it's obvious uh, that while people do identify and live, of course, locally, Insofar as they have any collective sense of themselves, it is at the level of the nation state. Uh, now, there can be, of course, struggles over what the boundaries of that state should be, as we see with Catalonia and Scotland and so on. Uh, but but uh, you can't imagine uh, in any effective democratic economic planning at simply a small local level. So one needs to find the space uh, within which to do this. And that's going to involve, of course, transforming state institutions. Um, people assume it's a lot easier to transform local government institutions, administrative institutions, uh, than state uh, or provincial or national ones. I'm not always convinced that that's true. The real estate industry has their claws uh, in local institutions, and they're embedded in the administrative apparatus of them uh, in a way that uh, is not all that easy to change either. 
I'm not pretending that institutions at the other levels of the state are easy to change, but one shouldn't merely assume uh, that that local ones are all that easy to change. Especially oh, that's the when, truth. That's the yeah. truth. Yeah, you, you yeah. put well, you you could put a you could put a, a fairly radical mayor in office or a couple uh, city aldermen or town council people or city council people or whatever. But but the powers that be, the the the, the real uh, owning class, the property class, uh, they 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 remain fairly intact. You see this in, in throughout the late '60s and and throughout the 1970s in uh, large swaths of, of of the South. I talk about this on my show quite a bit with the election of, of fairly radical mayors in a lot of countries, or sorry, uh, cities throughout the country, and yet uh, these mayors ended up seeing overseeing the neoliberal turn in those mm-hmm. cities in in large yeah. part. And so I, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm I'm happy to see yeah. a return to, to, to socialism at the local level. There are a lot of examples of this across the country that my listeners will be familiar with, but I'm also, I sort of have a knot in my stomach, you know, when yeah. I look to these things yeah. uh, because of the points that you Well, you know, as you say, in your country, I think that the most promising development that unfortunately hasn't moved as quickly as I would have liked it to uh, was the left roots attempt uh, of the workers' action centers to link up amongst themselves. They all had a base in their particular cities, whether it be the Bay Area, as with Power, where Steve Williams is located, or the workers' action center in Miami. But they were linking up with workers' action centers in Philadelphia, Chicago, New York. And they all realized that they were constrained by the limitations of the locale. They were also constrained by being reliant on foundation funding, but they were constrained by the limits of locale. And they ambitiously were trying to develop their base in each of their cities uh, to be socialists. Uh, That involved often beginning with uh, really the literal ABCs of what is the meaning of the word socialism. Um, but attempting to construct a national organization. And that would be effective because it isn't just a bunch of university professors like me spouting socialism, but these were people who had a real base in the cities in which they were working. Um, this has moved far too slowly, um, but it is what is going to be needed. I wholeheartedly agree. I'm, I'm I'm not very optimistic about the political moment in terms of what I see as kind of like a localist, uh, horizontalist, um, vaguely anarchist ethos, zeitgeist, if you will, that is really prevalent on the left right now. Um, you know, I we can we can talk about that until we're blue in the face. I'm not really sure how we're going to turn that around. Maybe podcasts like this one, we talk, talk uh, episodes with you. <laughs> but uh, well, I, you know, I I hope that uh, the Corbin development, the development of momentum in particular, uh, is an indication that people who were primarily oriented to protest. Um, which is, I think, you know, where you get this anarchist sensibility. And look, I can understand where it came from, given the failure of the social, socialist, social democratic, and communist, let alone the American Democratic parties oh, yeah. in the 20th century. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, totally understandable. So when the explosions, you know, began with Seattle and moved on to Quebec City and Genoa, et cetera, um, of anti-globalization, cap- anti-capitalist protests developed, one could understand it. And one had to admire, even to some extent, uh, given the failures of the Obama 
campaign, you know, the, the Obama Democrats, once they got into government, you know, one had to admire what was happening uh, with Occupy. That said, you know, the, you can protest till the cows come home, until hell freezes over and you won't change the world. Right, right. And, you know, the, the, young, the young Labor Party branch, which has been nurtured by momentum, has grown uh, by uh, by I think something under twenty thousand to now a hundred and ten thousand members. There are a hundred and ten thousand members of the Labour Party uh, who are in the party youth. Uh, this wow, is an wow. astonishing development among young people. Many of them would have been the protesters. Um, many of them were the protests, many of them were the student pro- union protests uh, from several years ago. Of course, U- UK uncut, and- sitting in on, yep. you know, the high street shops, etc., turning them into hospitals, creative stuff, but protest. And, and uh, I think people have moved from protest to politics. That happened to some extent with Syriza, but then, of course, given uh, the... Uh, uh, social democratization of Syriza, given the constraints it faced, uh, they all too quickly threw up their hands and walked away from it. Uh, and I was angry with much of my friends on the international left for encouraging that. I think they should have stayed in in order to ensure that Syriza did not social democratize as a party. Because uh, now they're in the wilderness. Uh, they are in the political wilderness again. And there isn't even that much protest. Um, but I do think we see positive developments. Uh, you know, I would have hoped uh, that the Sanders developments, uh, that the enormous number of people, not nearly as many as in the Labour Party, joining uh, the Democratic Socialists inside the, the Democratic Party, um, would be oriented to getting beyond uh, this divide uh, between policy, social democratic policy, which doesn't change the state, doesn't develop people's capacities, between that on the one hand and, you know, the capacity to protest but not change anything on the other. So let's talk a little bit about – let's get into the uh, details of that. So uh, Corbyn and the UK Labour Party recently had their conference uh, they unveiled the latest labor manifesto titled For the Many, Not the Few. In many respects, it's a brilliant platform. It harkens back uh, to the glory days of the UK Labor Party and the post-war Attlee government, pushing uh, you know, reforms uh, that used to be uh, you know, victories of the Labor Party, I should say. The free university tuition, the reinvigoration of the National Health Service. Uh, they plan to build half a million homes for social rent rebuilding the uh, council houses that were such an achievement of the post-war government and uh, launching something called a fair deal at work. They're going to raise the minimum wage to 10 pounds. They're going to make sure that pensioners are fully funded. They're going to uh, introduce massive public investment projects and public transportation. And then uh, they're, the most interesting perhaps is they're, they're, <laughs> they're wagering control over the finance sector, uh, including lending and investment. So uh, t- tell us a little bit about this manifesto. It really does harken back to that post-war Wilson government, and it, and it, and it, it seems to be a real achievement for building uh, something that could potentially go beyond uh, social democracy. But what's going to be required inside the party in order to pull that off? 
Gee, Adam, you are much more of a social democrat than I thought you were. <laughs> I'm playing a part. I'm the, playing the role here. The the, the, the post-war <laughs> labor government, uh, you know, uh, certainly introduced some uh, very important reforms. The 1945 yep. Attlee government, right. uh, not least the NHS, the National Health Service, and and public housing, as you pointed to. Sure. Um, but but uh, it it uh, was full of of constraints and and deficiencies. Right, right. Um, uh, of a very serious kind. The uh, education reforms uh, involved introducing grammar schools and working some working-class kids' access to a stream of public schooling that might get them into Oxford or Cambridge, but left the vast majority of working-class kids uh, completely unoriented to higher education. Right, the vocational all, training. Add all, well, yeah, and, and it wasn't even a good vocational training. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in order to get the NHS, they had to, as, as uh, Nye Bevan said, the Minister of Health, they had to stuff the doctors' mouths with gold. Uh, and they did. <laughs> and left them in, with yeah. tremendous power inside yeah. the health system. Right, right. Uh, the nationalized industries uh, were not at all democratic despite there being a very, very strong constituency inside the unions that wanted industrial democracy. And, and it was, you know, the technocrats and indeed many of the former managers who exclusively controlled the nationalized industries. When it came to the uh, government of 1964, the Wilson government, uh, it was uh, really immediately caught up in uh, trying to uh, prove that it was fiscally and economically responsible. Mm -hmm. uh, and its main policy thrust was to get wage restraint from the unions um, uh, in order to hold on to an increasingly barren uh, Keynesianism, uh, in, in order to hold on to the British pound's uh, international status. Um, so... You know, these were all highly constrained and limited governments. Uh, right, right. There is an Elan, especially about the 1945 government, that that is important in the Labour Party culture, the first majority uh, Labour government uh, in, in the English-speaking world, uh, and almost, you know, the most powerful one almost anywhere in the advanced capitalist world. But... Um, uh, and, and, and the manifesto, of course, does bask in that. But it goes beyond it. There are, there are phrases in it, uh, which I hope will be built on, that insofar as they say they're going to take back uh, the crucial industries of transport, water, energy, uh, back into the public domain, uh, that they will do so in a form that is democratic, that is internally democratic, that, that does not replicate uh, the top-down, highly bureaucratic form of uh, the previous nationalized industries, which people never felt was theirs. That was one of the reasons Thatcher could get away with it. People didn't feel it was theirs. Um, and, and, you know, if we're going to, in fact, learn something from the suspicion of the state that young anarchists have, young protesters have, it precisely has to involve the transformation of the state, including whatever state productive uh, enterprises there are. So there's an opening to that in the manifesto, which I, one of the reasons I think Corbyn goes beyond 
Attlee or Wilson, far beyond them, is that it points in that direction. I'm not sure he's going to get a lot of enough support from the unions for this, hmm. uh, who are much more oriented, given the nature of collective bargaining, uh, to uh, the cut and dried bargaining with the employer rather than taking responsibility for developing their members' capacities to run their own industries. Uh, we'll have to, you know, we'll have to see. Uh, there are other very good things in the manifesto. You pointed to a lot of them. The one you ended with is this proposal for a massively funded national investment bank supplemented by a bunch of regional investment banks, which would engage in massive infrastructure expenditure. Uh, and given, you know, how easy it is to borrow at low rates of interest, this is something that I and many others have been proposing for a long time uh, as a way to get out of austerity. Uh, Trump, Trump proposed this, of course, but he would have done it uh, through public-private pro- partnerships, through subsidies, through uh, throwing state resources at private developers and, const- and construction companies. Uh, in order to do this kind of infrastructure thing. He's not even doing that. Um, but uh, so, yeah, that's very positive. That said, as John McDonnell, who is the finance spokesman for the Labour Party, he would be the equivalent of the Secretary of the Treasury, it's called the Chancellor of the Exchequer in Britain, mm-hmm. uh, were there to be a Corbyn government, he has said we're very aware uh, that there might be a capital strike in the face of this. We're very aware that the enormously powerful interests in the city of London, which is their Wall Street, uh, will oppose this tooth and nail. We're trying to talk to some of them about why it makes sense to do this in order to build up Britain's uh, industrial uh, capacities again. We'll have to see how far he gets. You know, my great fear is that unless you're able to take uh, finance the institutions of finance into the public domain and turn finance into a public utility the way electricity or water or transport rails should be, um, you're not going to be able to pull this off. Uh, and and uh, this is, you know, the big test that will, they will have to face. Um, there's one other thing one needs to point to. They are inevitably, and any forward-looking socialist would, uh, pointing to new technology, uh, the cutting edge of technology, um, technological innovation uh, as, as being what, uh, you know, rather than going back to the coal mines, uh, as, as being what they would be investing in. I can't remember who said it, but somebody wrote that uh, Marx, the old man, Karl Marx himself, would have been really enthusiastic <laughs> about that aspect. I and mean, he was always very intrigued by That's new right. technological labor-saving innovations that could potentially be used to ease the, the, the suffering yeah. of the laboring person. Yeah. I think, and you can find all kinds of yeah. quotations of Marx where he says that, where he imagines a working class made up of scientists and engineers. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, that said – I think that there may be a, they may be a little too starry-eyed about technology. Hmm. Uh, they may have bought too much the notion uh, that uh, technological change will displace all labor. Uh, they may be too enamored with the, the job-creating possibilities of uh, digital technologies. Uh, you know, I, I think one needs perhaps a little bit more sobriety um, about that too. 
I mean, you know, they talk, you know, their image, I think, is to take something like Uber and turn it into a co-op. And that would be, in fact, would be wonderful. Uh, that said, facing off with these most powerful uh, corporations that now control the universe of cyberspace and all of the commodities that are being peddled through it, uh, that isn't going to be an easy task either. So I'd love to talk more. Uh, you've got to run. You have a time constraint. Thanks for laying all that out. I, I, just to be clear, I laid out the manifesto lines and the, the, the so-called triumphs of the Atlee government so that we could dismantle them one by one. So I'm not quite so much of a social democrat. <laughs> There's nothing to be ashamed of. A lot of- I'm not so much of a, a social democrat that I can't be critical because really, I mean, I, there, there are a lot of shades here yeah. of, of what Atlee, uh, the post-war government, right. or that triumph. I mean, even Corbyn, uh, the swing to Corbyn there was the biggest uh, electoral swing since, uh, since Atlee. Since, yeah, absolutely. And so the parallels there are, yeah. are really stark. No, no, and look, so and you have seems- you have good you have good precedents, Adam. Uh, Ken Loach's <laughs> film, the Ken Loach's film on 1945, uh, presented it in much the same terms you presented it. Well, I, there you, I, go. I, you know, I What's just good enough for Ken is good yeah, enough for me. Exactly. <laughs> I, I I just think one should also, in a sense, see the promise of what's going on as going beyond that. Sure, sure, right, right. Uh, and and you know that's why I think it's it's so interesting and 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 exciting. It's about building the capacities more so than just pro- proclaiming proclaiming it ideologically. Because too many people here's here's I think maybe I can end with this, and you you give me your thoughts here to see if we've reached some kind of satisfactory conclusion. Too many people rail against social democracy, and particularly left social democracy, in purely ideological terms, where they just want to say it's not good enough, it's failed us. This and you know the sort of like vulgar things you you see online and Twitter. Uh, I think we need to rail against it in terms of uh, in a material sense and in building the capacities uh, that could potentially go beyond it once we have achieved it. Because here in the United States, social democracy would, would be great for so many people. It would lift so many out of suffering. It would alleviate the debts and in- increase uh, you know, the, the life chances of, of so many millions of, of Americans. Uh, I'm and, not and sure so, we're going to be on the same page, Adam. I've always hoped, yeah, I've so. always hoped that Americans would blow past social democracy, that you, that you would take, you would take this democratic Republican, uh, often of course, uh, uh, narrow anti-government tradition, but you would take that democratic Republican tradition mm. and blow past the orientation of social democracy to be statist. Mm. Not, you know, to, tr- to think in terms of policies that don't involve changing the state apparatus, that don't involve democratizing the state apparatus, that think primarily in terms of introducing a set of reforms but not developing people's capacities so that people don't feel that those reforms are theirs to influence and change Uh, and modify. Social democracy is a very, very democratic centralist in the bad sense of that term affair. Many of the social democratic governments make the old communist parties look Republican uh, (laughs) Uh, in, in the way they are run internally. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, if you look carefully at social democracy, I think you want to do better than that. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and and uh, I, I think you can, in any case, the types of reforms that were achieved in the mid-20th century are no longer achievable in the kind of global capitalist world that we now exist in. 
Um, you know, unless we can have the types of controls on investment, the types of controls on what's invested, where it's invested, how it's invested, not just capital moving across borders, but in terms of democratic economic planning within uh, states, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to even hold on to those reforms. The failure of social democracy was that having developed those reforms, having won them, they didn't use them as springboards to go beyond them to taking on capital, to taking away its control over investment. Um, and, and at the crucial turning point of uh, the breakdown of the Keynesian welfare state of the mid-60s, there were left social democrats, as you say, who were precisely arguing for that. Tony Benn in the British Labour Party, Meidner in the Swedish uh, Party, the young socialists in the German Party who were expelled and many of them became Greens in the 1970s, the Waffle in the NDP in Canada, who were saying we're not going to be able to hold on to the reforms unless we now move to a strategy of the type of economic planning that would take investment decisions over the crucial things away from the mm-hmm. banks mm-hmm. and the massively large multinational corporations. And and they were defeated in every social democratic party. They didn't want to go beyond the reforms any longer. They had come to terms with capitalism. And insofar as they were defeated, those radical proposals, what you saw was the whittling away of the welfare state. You know, Electrolux in Sweden was investing more capital in the Italian electrical goods industry by the late 1960s than it was reinvesting in Sweden. In those conditions, you know, even in Sweden, the welfare state began to wither, uh, let alone in other countries. That's the wrong state uh, that, that we wanted to wither, right? Uh, we, 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 yeah, exactly. <laughs> we wanted exactly. the capitalist state to wither, not the welfare state. Exactly. Well, I got to say, I, I agree with everything you just put forward. One of the parallels here in the United States is the way that these so-called – well, sure, they're progressives, not so-called progressives. They are progressives. What they say is that we, we need to reinstitute Glass-Steagall, for example, yeah. and separate investment banking from uh, you know regular savings and lending. Uh, you know, That's one of the starry-eyed dreams that some of these folks have that are totally – that you've written a lot about mm-hmm. – uh, you and Sam Gendon mm-hmm. and others have written a lot about uh, that we're just simply not going to be able to see these reforms. So insofar as uh, progressivism or social democracy represents that naive, uh, you know, capitalist state blind, uh, you know, utopian mm-hmm. dreamer kind of uh, mentality. Sure. I, I reject I that, that. Uh, completely. I, know that. I think the problem for me is. Give give me a word or a phrase. How do you articulate your 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 political viewpoint? And we'll we'll, we'll end on that. I think we should. I am very happy with the word socialist. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, I think one fills it out with this notion of democratic economic planning. One fills it out with the notion of taking uh, the key sectors above all finance into the public domain and making them public utilities. I'm not so happy with the word nationalization. Um, uh, because it doesn't imply uh, it being a public utility. It doesn't imply democratization, etc. Uh, so, but I'm quite happy with the word socialism. I think uh, we need yeah. to fill it out again. Let's keep that and, and fill it in with all of the awareness that we have of global capitalism and the structure of power and the state and all the rest of it. So, Leo, thank you so much for coming on the show and challenging me. I learned so much uh, from you as always, and uh, let's do this again soon. Always happy to talk with you, Adam. Keep up the good work. (laughs) 
And that concludes episode two of the State Theory and Socialist Strategy series. That was the great Leo Panich, dear friend and mentor of mine that he is. You can be assured that he will be appearing on season two of Dead Pundit Society to talk about all types of things. Probably the Jeremy Corbyn moment, if I had to bet. Uh, There will be a Corbyn government in the next uh, six to 12 months, it seems. And there's going to be a lot of discussion and chatter uh, about that and the kind of prospects that they face and all of the contradictions entailed in managing a capitalist state from the far left. So thanks again to Leo. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This series marches on with episode three coming your way very shortly. Until then, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this new crazy mother...